The Going Up, Going Down podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the weekly Going Up, Going Down podcast, an EFL-focused pod for The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. Opposite me is the Lucas Djukovic to my Scott Hogan. It's George Ellick. Similar similar height difference. (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous. You're nowhere near the size of the Duke. And you're you're nowhere near the size of Scott Hogan. I'm nowhere near the the speed of Scott Hogan, but I am a good finisher. Um, Look, on this week's pod, uh, there's same sort of features as always. Weekend match previews, one for each of the EFL divisions, sprinkled throughout this podcast. And the usual hot take, the usual EFL rewind, and an in-focus today that focuses not on a club, but this week on a player. And a reminder that all the Athletics podcasts are completely free. There are plenty of them as well, and they are all top, top class. Totally free on all the Noble podcast providers. Ad-free versions, though, are only available to subscribers, as well as so much written content. Brilliant, top class written content. You can sign up and get a 40% discount right now by going to theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod, 40% discount. Go to that site and you can sign up for that now. Yeah, back down to the bottom of the championship for the game of the weekend here. That's where it's most exciting, the bottom of the championship at the moment. The top end looks like it's kind of sorting itself out. There's going to be a race for sixth place, um, but I think we can now probably say the top two are going to have to really make a mess of things if they're not going to finish the top two. But at the bottom, that's where the excitement is. And we're going to go to the Valley. I'm going to be there at this game, which Mm. is very exciting. Um, Charlton against who, George? Charlton against Middlesbrough. And this is wow. This is Groundhog Day for Charlton. Yeah. This is the third time in just a few weeks that their fans will be making a trip to the Valley, leaving their houses, leaving their cars, walking to the stadium, thinking to themselves, this is a massive game against a side in the relegation zone. If we lose this, we're right in it. If we win it, we're going to be out of it. <laughs> and the first two times that's happened have been against Barnsley and Luton. And they came through both tests with flying colours. They beat Barnsley 2-1. They beat Luton 3-1. And I'm sure Lee Bowyer, I'm sure Johnny Jackson, I'm sure Lyle Taylor probably left the ground on those days thinking, finally, we've pushed ourselves clear of relegation. But here they are again. Given that Barnsley and Luton's form around those two games has been so good, Barnsley took 10 points from their next six after that defeat. The Luton defeat was their only one in their six games in the middle of it. They won four of the other five. So you can see there that for Charlton, despite playing against sides in the relegation zone, the actual form line of those wins is very, very good. They come up against a Borough side who they're just one point above. They have Stoke Samp in between them, Borough taking up the last relegation spot. And it's pretty likely, you have to say, given that and given that you know Stoke will likely pick up points, it's likely that Charlton will fall into the relegation zone with a defeat here. They come into the game in terrible, terrible form. 
They lost both games on the road after that Luton result. They got beaten by Sheffield Wednesday 1-0 at Hillsborough. Wednesday's form is very, very poor. Their form at Hillsborough is even worse. And the result against Huddersfield looks less bad in terms of form. The Cowley brothers doing a great job there. But they're still a struggler, still a relegation candidate. And they lost that game 4-0. Oshelaja and Pierce both making pretty poor errors. Although you must say the 4-0 scoreline maybe flatters the host a little bit, given they scored twice in injury time. They'll be happy to be back at the Valley, though, I guess, George, where they've done most of their points accrual this season, if you will. <laughs> yeah, they've they've won 10 games this season. Seven of, them, seven of them came at the Valley. And what I would say is under Lee Bowyer, they're a side who seem to relish the big occasion. They won in the playoff final last season after going 1-0 down with an absolutely ridiculous howl from Dylan Phillips letting a back pass from Naby Sargo under his, go under his foot, but they came back and won that game 2-1. You'd almost say their return to the championship and the pressure they were under in those first few games, having had such a squad term, was also big games. and They did very well early on. The two games I've mentioned already, the Barnsley game and the Luton game, are almost kind of relegation cup finals, you could say. And they came both of those games with victories. But around them, the form has been very, very poor. So you kind of wonder if Boya himself is someone who's able to get his teams up for big games. They've got key players who seem to fire in those, Lyle Taylor being quite clearly one of them, but there, there is issues in the squad. There are issues in the squad, I should say. Aidan McGeady came in in January to try and freshen things up in the final third. He has been woeful. Uh, you know, even in the, the Huddersfield game where he started, he offered very, very little. And that's kind of in keeping with his form towards the end of his Sunderland career in League One. We covered Middlesbrough in, in detail last week. If anyone didn't listen to the, the Going Up, Going Down podcast last week, I'd recommend it because I really um, went in two-footed on Jonathan Woodgate's borough. So I'm not going to do that again. But it, you have to say that they were much improved against Forrest on Monday night, a game where they'll feel they probably deserve to win given the nature of Lewis Graben's equaliser. I think we can all probably agree it, it probably more often than not would, would be given as a foul. And just in terms of balance of play, going 1-0 up uh, and so going 1-0 behind and coming back to, to lead 2-1, they were probably the better side. Yeah, they had a really good stretch, but it was kind of... I'm not even sure if I'd say this is the most consistent problem that they have because they've got so many or they have had so many at different times this season. But even, you know, their their, their strong stretch of play in that game was probably no more than 20 minutes or half an hour. And that's kind of a, a huge problem for them. Even if they were to go ahead early, let's say, even if they were to start this game well, you wouldn't have too much confidence in Borough to, to really see it out over the course of 90. Definitely not. You look at the two best performances over the last few weeks. One was against Brentford and again, they lost 3-2 and the other one was against Nottingham Forest and again, they've drawn two all. So you're right. When they put in bad performances, they lose. When they put in good performances, sometimes they lose. Sometimes they get a point. Uh, Ashley Fetcher was out of the game on Monday with a hamstring injury but he's set to return uh, to the to the first team squad at least Britta Sombolonga was ill uh, some noises suggesting he may be back um, although he was said to have missed training yesterday uh, they played the 4-2-3-1 on Monday so Jonathan Woodgate yet again shuffling his pack in terms of both personnel and system uh, Hayden Coulson is the one player I would recommend looking out for for Borough who's maybe kind of usurping Jed Spence as the academy product who's catching the eye at the moment down the left-hand side got the assist for Lewis Wing's goal on the counter-attack as well and he's just a very good pretty direct left left-sided player who can do the defensive side of things well on top of that but not much to be positive about with Borough not really much to be positive about with Charlton either as I mentioned this is the third time they've faced this kind of a test whereas for Middlesbrough this is the first time they've really had to perform now in the relegation zone I'm not necessarily sure I would hang my hat on either side winning Uh, I think it's going to be 
a, a pretty a pretty tight game, but my only concern is Charlton's defensive uh, solidity you can't really vouch for. Uh, whereas Borough do put in performances where they do look very solid at the back. So if I was going to say one team was going to win it, I think it probably would be Borough with a marginal result. But I do remember you sitting here telling me that you thought Borough had enough to beat Barnsley on the road and they put in a really, really abject display here. And that is probably the, the most similar uh, game that they faced in recent times and, and they didn't show up. So I also said when previewing the Charlton-Luton game that given, I think, those teams are on a similar level that played out the way that that game played out, given that these two teams are probably on a similar level, that Lyle Taylor could make all the difference because quite simply, when he's played this season, he has contributed about as much as any striker in the league and it's that sort of consistent quality uh, that sets him apart from probably any other player on the pitch in this game. Definitely. I mean, there's no there's no denying that he's their big their big game player. He's the, the man who they turn to when they need him and he's someone who often does step up. I'd also say that Ashley Fletcher is someone who, coming into this, could easily bully that Charlton back back to especially coming off the back of that abject display against Huddersfield as well so I'm not sure it's just going to be as simple as give the ball to Taylor and he'll score against the Borough side who can keep it pretty tight especially since McCoody's come in they do look like a better defensive side so if I had to say I'd probably say a, a score draw maybe one all or two all um, but if either side were to shade it you know I wouldn't like to bet against Charlton at home but I think if either side were to take it it might just be Borough so after me very much sitting on the fence in terms of our championship uh, game of the weekend, we're going to change it up a little bit. Where normally we'd now go into League One and League Two, we're still going to choose the best games, the ones to look out for from those two divisions. But later on in the podcast... Spreading it out a little bit. And now we're going to come to the man who normally loves sitting on the fence, but this time he's going to be giving us his hot take of the week in the hot take debate. Smattering of game previews throughout this week's Going Up, Going Down pod. For now, a hot take. And I would like to see... George, for, for want of a, a better phrase, I haven't come up with a particularly catchy name for it yet, but I would like to see a manager departure window. Just as clubs can only buy and sell players during the transfer windows, I would like a trial, because as with anything, we don't know if this is going to be great or bad, but I'd like a trial for the same thing with managers. A trial that would see for a year or two a managerial departure window, some would call it a managerial sacking window, but essentially a period of time where you can sack or hire managers and significantly long periods of time where you are not allowed to do that. And I'll tell you why I've come up with this concept. For me, there's two pretty simple parts to it, but fairly compelling parts to it. I think it'd be better for managers, clearly. I think it'd be better for clubs as well. Uh, In terms of managers, I'll go here first. I think probably anyone level-headed and anyone that's the sort of person that will tune into going up going down pod on the athletic the best people will recognize that when it comes to the turnover and job security of managers we've gone way too far and this is something that's been spoken about for over a decade now but nothing appears to have really been done about it other industries and i know that football is the greatest thing of all time and it's got so many specific quirks and uh, unique traits but other industries would never make scapegoats of of managers or similar positions in the cavalier way that that football does the way that we move between someone being a brilliant manager or a terrible manager and really rarely anywhere in between is ridiculous especially because the reality is 
in sort of scientific terms, the difference in quality between most managers is, is probably mostly minimal. Uh, you get people like Nathan Jones, an incredible manager at Luton, a terrible manager at Stoke. Gar- Gary Rowett's a good example in the championship. Gary Monk to some extent as well. But with Rowett, you've got great at Birmingham, so good, bad at Derby and Stoke, great now at Millwall. What's more likely? Are these managers oscillating wildly between being great and bad or, or is the way that they're being judged just wrong and flawed? I think because of this cult of the manager, as it's sometimes called, uh, a lot of times we think managers are kind of the be-all and end-all. But if you take a entirely hypothetical scenario where every club had the same structure, the same quality of players with the same personalities, the same budget and just every variable the same, a manager according to some to some reports I've read online, would basically make 10 to 15% difference either way. A good manager, 10 to 15% difference positively and a really bad one on the other side. The, the reality is clearly that the difference in quality, uh, especially if you take out, let's say, the top 5%, who we're probably not talking about in EFL terms anyway, and the bottom 5%, again, we're probably not talking about them in EFL terms. The difference is fairly arbitrary. So I think that's an interesting thing to discuss. I also think the the length of time that managers are judged on clearly is too short, how often they are cast aside. Um, I think I was going through the website, thesackrace.com, the last few years, you're looking at about 40 to 50% of managers in the top four divisions losing their jobs every year. The human impact is clearly not being considered enough, and this is a problem not just in football, but throughout society at 55% of First-time managers never get another job. And we've spoken to loads of them um, over the years that the difficulty psychologically of managing a team is immense, of being under constant pressure, of being questioned constantly. And I think the feeling of being so disposable is really, really tough. We underestimate what being a manager entails. I think a lot of people think, you know, tactics on a Saturday bit of motivation during the week and their jobs are good and but I think the reality if you think about it is um, the very nature of of coaching and improving and developing players uh, of the tactical side of the game but also PR we we often talk about managers who clearly are quite good with the media and understand what they're doing but the constant questioning and the constant press conferences both fans and the media being able more or less to um, fairly loudly question what you're doing has got to be fairly impactful. Uh, transfers, some managers are very hands-on, some otherwise. And also management in more of a corporate sense, that being the head of a team of people, of players and a backroom staff, as well as another corporate term, managing upwards with bosses that can be fairly erratic, to, to say the least. I think that having these windows would improve things for managers giving them a little bit more time, and I'm not saying you can't sack them, but giving them just a bit more time without having to be immediately fearing the sack, which we've been told countless times affects your performance, your level-headedness, and psychologically as well. And I also think it'd be better for clubs. It's also been proven, not by me, but by people much cleverer than me, and there's plenty that you can read online about this, that sacking your manager is most likely not the answer to your club's problems, depending on how large the problems are. The turnover being high as it is, isn't because it's a proven good method of improving results for your team. And and the studies that have been done show that 
sadly, to use a, a pretty nerdy term, a lot of this comes to, down to regression to the mean, something that we talk about more than some of our listeners would, would like. Uh, it does come into play here. There, there are studies that show that teams suffering an uncharacteristic slump in form, which sometimes leads to a manager being sacked, will bounce back and return to a more normal long-term position in the league, regardless of whether they replace their manager or not. So this would save some clubs money, clubs who are, let's say, predisposed to making uh, trigger-happy decisions. But also, I want to see owners, and if it's not the owners that have responsibility, sporting directors or directors of football, taking responsibility and doing their job and doing it properly. How often do we see clubs uh, take so much time and energy and money assembling expensive playing squads only to hire a manager who's a poor fit from a, a technical or philosophical, if you like, perspective? I think when you hire a manager in that process, there are surely, given the amount of applicants and given this sort of decision-making process, there, there are surely so many KPIs, to use a, a corporate term, that you bring up. And how often would that be purely do really well on the pitch in terms of points at all times immediately on a short-term basis? Probably never. You, you often hear phrases like develop the youth. We want someone who will get the club back on an even keel, who will overhaul the squad and cut the wage bill and play a better style of football. And those things go slightly out the window, which is a little bit unfair on managers. I think that Sporting directors, owners, whoever we're talking about, need to be somewhat responsible for their own failings. And to try and, if you can't just sack a manager on a whim, you'd actually probably be being true to yourself in the long term. If you think you've made a good decision when you appoint a manager in June, then probably you've done it for the right reasons. And probably if you were to sack him off three months later, you're probably not doing that for the right reasons. So I'm not saying once a year. Um, I'm not even sure exactly how this would work best. My tentative suggestion would be June and January. It's not foolproof. I'm sure it would chuck up plenty of weirdness on its own. I'm sure there'd be lots of tapping up and I'm sure the media would still love talking about managers under pressure. But I'd like to at least see it trialled. I think it would improve things, as I've said, for managers and for the concept of being a football manager. I think it would improve the way uh, that many clubs are run as well. I think the... Uh, the high turnover of managers, George, is simply an inefficiency in the game. And I think this <laughs> would go some way to dragging it back. I mean, I, I definitely agree with most of your rant um, about the way that managers are treated and how they are judged. I cannot get on board with the managerial um, transfer window because I think it would only further worsen the problem you're talking about. Imagine it now. The eve of managerial deadline day, you would have speculation running rife about who's going to get the chop the next day. Mm. I'd be interested to know, and there's no way we're going to find this out. I reckon if you introduced, say, two fortnightly periods where there could be sackings, I reckon there'd be more sackings in the season than there would be. Because you, you would, in that run-up, in that week-long run-up to the window, you'd have fans there being like, are we going to do it? Mm. Like, let's put the, put the pressure on. My opinion and you know, maybe I'm uh, speaking out of turn here because this is your hot take and I'm, and I'm Please, taking it. Please, go ahead. But if you wanted to do something like this, I think you'd have to basically impose sanctions. You have to say, if you sack the manager you hired within six months of hiring him, then you, you lose five points. I that, quite like that. That's In your fact, mistake. I quite like what you've said there, within six months. I take your point about the carnage if, <laughs> if, there, you know, if, if there was Jim a, a run-up to it. absolutely love it. <laughs> Jim White would love it. But, but that's quite interesting. 
potentially a, a six month period where you're, you're giving the person you've hired a chance like yeah. you, and you're owning your decision to do so. And I do think that in the long run that that would work for everyone. Of course, the boring like legal stuff there'd have to be plenty Don't of, of things that. put in place. You know, you, th- there would, of course, have to be some reasons for you to part company with a manager if they were doing, like, horrendously bad things. Not necessarily <laughs> on the pitch, but just as as people. Where are we going? But um, anyway, if it's the, an interesting listener... concept. Hopefully this starts a conversation, George, at NTT20pod on Twitter. What do you guys think about this? And if the listeners ever need evidence that we do not d- discuss the hot take debate before we record, I think we've just given it in, uh, in plenty there. <laughs> Now, we know that the top of League One is just complete carnage at the moment. This kind of sums things up. Peterborough are only three points behind Portsmouth, but they're eighth and Pompey are third. That's how tight this league is right now. Pompey have played one game fewer. So given that they're away from home, given their away form over the course of the season has been fairly poor, I would say that avoiding defeat for Pompey will be the main aim here to keep the gap at three or more to keep that game in hand, of course. Whereas for Peterborough, a win would really encourage them and put them on the same points tally as Portsmouth. So I'd say almost in a way more of an important game for for Peterborough in terms of getting the win here, especially because they haven't played much recently. The quirks of the League One schedule means that since three weeks ago today, Posh have played two games and Portsmouth have played six games. Pompey so involved in cup competition still, of course, been knocked out by Arsenal, of course, on Monday in the FA Cup. But Pompey have, uh, Posh rather, haven't played that much recently. And when they have, they haven't won uh, a draw against Burton, a defeat previously against Fleetwood. So I think the fans, almost because they haven't been playing much and other teams have, given the nature of the other teams around them winning, they're getting a bit itchy. But they haven't been helped by Ivan Tony being suspended for two games. He comes back in here and that's going to be a big factor to me. But to go back to the schedule, you can't ignore it when previewing this game. Since Christmas Day, Posh have played 14 games and Portsmouth have played 19 games. Now, cleverer people than me understand the physical impact of playing this many games in such a short space of time and the, I guess the extent to which it impacts on a team's performance in an individual game. But it is certainly notable uh, in terms of the, the tactical battle, you've got Posh who play a, this 3-4-1-2 with Smodix behind Tony and Dembele, who were just tearing up the league uh, in, in a sort of six weeks period between January and February before Tony got injured. They'll be back in. I think it'll be quite a congested game in the centre of midfield and, and Portsmouth, whose main threat is probably out left. The combination of, of Ronan Curtis and Steve Seddon, I feel like they could have some serious joy against the Peterborough right-sided wing-back. So there are some sort of key things to look out for if you're watching this game. Team news is, is also important. As I mentioned, Tony back from a, a two-game suspension. That actually means he hasn't played for three and a half weeks, which you might say he might come back rusty. You might say he'd come back having had a lovely bit of rest and looking very, very sharp. For me, Tony, the best player in League One, I expect him to have a big impact on the last 10 games. And the key for me is that Christian Burgess is suspended for this game. He is Portsmouth's centre-back. They struggled to start the season to find a centre-back pairing that was performing at the level necessary. Raggett and Burgess established themselves and they've been at the heart of the defence during this renaissance for Pompey that's seen them get towards the automatic spots. But Burgess's suspension mixed with Tony coming back from injury. I think that's that's quite crucial. So the big questions are, George, 
How much does Burgess's absence and this crazy schedule impact Portsmouth's performance in a negative way? How much does Tony's return boost Posh's? The mixture of those three makes me lean towards Peterborough here. I'm going to go 2-1 or 3-1 potentially the score. I can see a third on the break at the end. (laughs) This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well with spring on the horizon it's time to get your wardrobe sorted for the warmer weather and stitch fix will help you with that to get started go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic and you fill in a style quiz which tells stitch fix all about your personal style budget size and shape and your clothing needs and wants at that stage A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from a selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. What you do then is, once you've received the clothes, you try on everything at home and mix them with other items in your wardrobe. At that stage, you pay for what you love and what you want to keep, and you send back the rest For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So it's key to remember that you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are both free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. So give it a go today. Get started with Stitch Fix and support our podcast in doing so by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X. .co.uk forward slash athletic. On now to Not The Back Pages, where Ali and I look to shed some light on some of the stories around the EFL that you may not have seen. Uh, this one you probably have done, though, because it's fairly high profile, and it's about Kiko Casilla and the independent commission who did not accept the Kiko Casilla's claim that he was unaware of the existence of the racist word that he was found guilty of using against Jonathan Lecco of Charlton. Uh, the 33-year-old's been banned for eight matches and fined 60 thousand pounds after yeah as I say being found guilty of that and his claim that he had learned relatively little English and therefore didn't understand what he was saying or didn't know the word he was saying rejected and if you want to find out more about this if you want to see the details into the investigation what was said by certain witnesses definitely read the fantastic article by the one and only Phil Hay if he didn't know the word how did he use it why Casilla was found guilty. It has loads and loads of info about the case, about why it's taken so long uh, for it to be, for, for this conclusion to be found and basically what is going to be happening. So I definitely recommend uh, reading this and all of Phil's uh, other articles. If you haven't subscribed yet, as we said at the top of the show, you can do so now and get a 40% discount. Go to theathletic.com forward slash EFL pod, as I say, 40% discount. And make sure you tune in to Phil's podcast as well, coming out on Friday as he's going to go into this topic in further detail. Further news in the EFL. Well, this week's been dominated by concerning news coming out of various clubs, concerning news with regards to the governance of the clubs and to do with various issues. We'll start with Southend United, of course, uh, on course for relegation from League One to League Two, having one of the worst seasons we've seen at League One level on the pitch, struggles off the pitch as well, as their chairman, Ron Martin, confirmed the club is under an EFL transfer embargo due to an unpaid tax bill. Southend owe £668,000 to HMRC by the 11th of March, with a further month stacked up 
behind. The PFA are in contact with Macclesfield Town after they've failed to pay salaries on time for the fourth time this season. February's wages were due to be paid on Friday, but have still not been received by players. This is an ongoing problem that we've discussed more than a few times on this podcast already. Macclesfield now face an EFL disciplinary hearing for failing to adhere to contracts. If found guilty, both clubs, Southend and Macclesfield, could face a fine, a points deduction or even withdrawal of their league membership. Uh, And Oldham as well. This news was more towards last week, but has continued this week. They could be put in administration on Friday because of debts owed to former owner Simon Blitz. His company owns Boundary Park and served the club with a notice to the court to appoint administrators on the 28th of February last week. Talks are ongoing between Oldham and Blitz as they try to resolve issues that, that uh, the issues that emerged. Now, each of these three cases are different and as with matters of this nature, quite Uh, hard to explain fully, but each of them exceptionally concerning. And what we're seeing more and more is that across the leagues, there is an emergence of uh, club owners who are not able to sustain their football clubs. And at the moment, there's not enough necessarily being done to stop this. We have a problem where, for whatever reason, clubs and their owners appear to be quite happy to rack up uh, wage bills for players and staff, which are so much more than the actual revenue of the club. And there's this idea that as long as a chairman is very rich and appears to love the club, that everything will be fine and they'll be able to cover those losses forever. But any club for me with a wage bill far above its revenues is a club that I'm concerned about, no matter who the owner is. It's it's not a sustainable situation for third and fourth tier football to be in before you even talk about the championship. So um, there's something that really needs to be done, uh, sanctions if needed, but also uh, rules set in place to try and ad- redress this imbalance. Uh, personally, I'd like to see owners have to guarantee funding for longer than a season, which is what it is currently. Uh, David Conn wrote today that they are only required to guarantee funding for a season, but of course players' contracts are for two, three sometimes five years. So what we've seen, especially in the case of Berry, where an independent commission came back and said, essentially, Stuart Day, the second to last owner, it was his inability to pay for the costs of the club, which he'd been happy to to sort of rack up, if you will, um, that ultimately caused the, the issue there. We're finished in League Two with some clubs to be concerned about off the pitch. George, uh, what's the game in League Two this weekend that you think is most significant that you're going to preview for us now? Yeah, well, it's on that kind of comes from the topic you've just mentioned there. Uh, Crew against Stevenage might look on paper like second against 24th. It might look like a banker home win. And to be honest, it probably is a banker home win. But Stevenage are in a weird position here. It feels like they've been on 22 points forever. They've had eight defeats in a row. They've gone through Graham Wesley. They've now got Alex Revel in charge. There's little to get excited about on the pitch. There's little reason to think they'll be able to get anything from this game. But given the news that you've just mentioned about Macclesfield, they're in limbo because they don't. Know, there's only one relegation spot and they have absolutely no idea if Macclesfield, who are currently eight points above them on 30 points, are going to be are going to have further further sanctions. They've got a four-point suspended uh, deduction from earlier in the season. They could, of course, be deducted another six on the back of today's news, which would be a 10-point deduction in total, which would put them below Stevenage. So even though there's no, well, there's not 
no suggestion, but there's no evidence that this is going to happen. For Stevenage, they have to know that every single point they pick up at this stage could be absolutely massive. So going to Crewe, a side who are currently second in the league, they're third behind Swindon, come into this on the back of a one-all draw against Exeter, where they were lucky to really get anything from the game. They've won two of the last five matches, but every game for anyone in that clutch of five teams, whether it's Cheltenham, Plymouth, Crewe, Exeter or Swindon, is so, so important now because that is certainly going to be three ty- three of those teams going into three spots for automatic promotion and two of them settling for the playoffs. As I say, I'm not suggesting this is going to be a game where we're going to see an upset, but I think it's important to point out in covering League Two that because of the uncertainty around Macclesfield, because what's going on off the pitch, we don't know what the EFL are going to do, but there is a chance that suddenly Stevenage could find themselves in 23rd position without even picking up any points so even a draw here would be a massive result for them and for crew it's important because they have to keep the pressure on Swindon because as soon as they as soon as any of these teams start dropping points they're going to find themselves very quickly down towards the bottom end of that set as Plymouth found out in the last couple of weeks prediction home win I mean it's impossible to predict anything else as they've lost eight games in a row for a reason but just keep an eye on Stevenage, keep an eye on this situation because it could get even worse, sadly, for Macclesfield fans. So for those who've been listening every week, you will know that we normally choose a team and delve into what's going on there at the moment, looking at their manager, their style of play, their situation in the league, and then asking the fans for their take as well. But this week, we're going to mix it up a little bit and it's going to coordinate, I guess, with another headline from Not The Back Pages, which is... Yeah, Jude Bellingham is in focus this week. And we'd sort of line this one up already because when you have a player like him, it's worth A, talking about him and B, for those who haven't seen too much of him, but who certainly will be expecting to see a lot of him, having heard a lot about him, it's good to be able to to give our thoughts and opinions on what he's done and I guess where the hype has come from. But also this morning, strong reports from, I think, fairly believable German sources that it's going to be Borussia Dortmund that are the destination for Bellingham, having had plenty of rumours about Manchester United, about Chelsea, all of the top clubs. And this would represent uh, a, a huge news story. And for years now, Bellingham, behind the scenes, in those who follow youth team football and those who work within the game, trying to scour the globe for the best young players, he's been an open secret, someone that has by no means burst onto the scene this season that Birmingham have been able to sort of keep under wraps. Everyone's known about him and he could have moved like so many other young players at 14, 15 to pretty much any other side in Europe if he wanted to. But he appears to have this, he's appeared to have either very good advice and his dad is is a big part of his life, a former, well, he's a a non-league goal-scoring legend in the Midlands actually, Bellingham's dad but um, the, the, the suggestion is that it was always Birmingham is his club he will start his career with Birmingham and then we'll see where we go and that there's there's a way in which Bellingham has both given a lot to Birmingham both his performances on the pitch but also a very hefty potential transfer fee at a time where Birmingham have had some financial problems but also that they will have done well by him and they would have been the perfect base for him I guess why is there so much hype? It's got to be a question here. Age plays a huge part in this. Bellingham's born in the summer of 2003. So he's played about 30 games this season, senior football, and he is currently 16. He'll turn 17 
towards the end of the season or at the end of the season. Jadon Sancho, for reference, is three years older than Bellingham. And Sancho was 17 and a half when he made his debut for Dortmund, whereas Bellingham by that point might well have 40 senior games under his belt. So already you're looking at something that we basically haven't seen before. No one has played this many games by his age. Jack Pitbrook, who's a writer for The Athletic, actually wrote an article about about Bellingham, but about some others a few months back. And he spoke to Daniel Dodds for the piece, who is the FA's former talent ID manager for under-15s to under-17s. And he said he's got everything. The way he moves, his technical ability, he's incredibly bright in terms of football intelligence, tactical ability, tactical knowledge, knowing what to do, where to be, as good as anything I've seen comfortably. Pitbrook also added that he plays with instinctive football intelligence, technical skill and leggy grace, which is a phrase I thought was was quite good. Because if you watch a lot of clips of Bellingham, that really does sum up how he appears on the pitch, how he moves. And for, for, for Birmingham, one of the most remarkable things is he's played in almost every possible midfield role. Out on the right, starting on the left as a number 10 deeper as a holding midfielder and at the heart of a 4-4-2 in a box-to-box role. For England, where he is the absolute star of what's considered to be a very strong 2003 age group, the likes of Louis Barry, uh, Karamoko Dembele, Harvey Elliott, uh, Musiala, who's at Bayern Munich, he's the star. He plays a deep midfield role because he's just so, I think, more on the, on the mental side of things, he's just a level above anyone else at that level. And from what Daniel Dodds, from what Jack Pitbrook said, it's hard to add too much else just from the amount that we've seen him. But certainly the way that he carries the ball is what sets him apart. I think his balance, his ability to change direction, leave a defender going one way while he goes the other, that stands out. But also the more intangible stuff, I suppose, like sometimes with good young players, you ignore the the bad things that they do and you really focus on the good things, especially things like dribbling ability or pace. And sometimes you'll say, oh, he's a fearless young player because it might mean that they, they run with the ball a lot. But sometimes that is really almost suggesting that they don't always make the right decisions. Maybe they don't have the right intelligence to know when to move the ball, when to dribble, when to pass and, and when to shoot. And from what we've seen, Bellingham looks to have that football IQ that is just really the sort of thing that you can't teach. He's also very keen to get stuck in. Without the ball, he is tireless. His his body positioning's good. A real appetite for tackling. Defensive work, physical battles don't phase him. He was actually booked early in the season for squaring up to Alexander Mitrovic, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. And only two players who have played over 2,000 minutes in the championship this season have averaged more tackles per 90 than him. So he's he's not just this dribbling midfielder. He's got so much more to his game. He's He's probably not a an insanely creative passer at this stage. Um, he he's he has scored four goals as we record, but you know he's not he hasn't uh, the technique that he's shown shooting from range and in other areas hasn't stood out as being incredible. But he's 16. <laughs> he's going to turn 21 in the summer of 2024. How much can happen between <sighs> this age? And even 21, which we consider to be a young player, that is what's so fascinating. And that's the key to where I see his development as well is you look around academies across the country and you will see plenty of 16-year-olds who are progressive passers, who are very tidy on the ball, who can keep it very well and get on the ball and do that kind of stuff. The fact that that's the one get part of his game that is maybe missing, like if you stuck him in that Dortmund team now, I think he would probably struggle with that kind of passing retention style, the ability to move it very quickly and always see the gap and always kind of play the diagonals. 
but he's got all the things that you try and have to coach into players. He's got that willingness to go past players. He's got that athleticism. He's got the ability to pick up the ball in space in the box. He's got the composure to finish. And those are the hard parts. I'm sure when, when he gets to an, to an elite level, and he's not helped by the fact he plays for a Birmingham side who don't really keep it anyway, uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see that part to his game really come on. What, what do you make of a move to Dortmund, a potential move to Dortmund at this stage, we should say. But generally the reaction to this online from almost everyone has been sort of, yeah, kind of makes sense. Yeah. But and, but that's kind of interesting to me, you know. I mean, it's quite exciting for you and I to be able to talk about Borussia Dortmund as well. It, it's more in, in the way that, I suppose, when you look at Brentford and you see the way they recruit and as soon as they're after a player, you think to yourselves like, yep, they've done their research here. It's the same with Dortmund and youngsters. I mean, there's a reason why Jaden Sancho and, and, and Haaland have both gone there and it's because they know they're going to get minutes. They know it's a platform for their talent. And that's exactly the same for Bellingham. He'll go there, even aged, you know, 17 months, he'll be in the summer when he starts. I'm sure he'll get minutes next season in the Bundesliga, Bundesliga and I'm sure they'll bring him on into the player that he wants to be. We asked a few people, or we asked you all on Twitter, uh, for your comments, anyone who'd seen him play and any thoughts they had about him and his playing style and his ability. Tom said, you wouldn't know he is 16 watching him play. He knows how to play the game like a seasoned pro. Seems very comfortable in every position I've seen him. Dortmund would be a good fit if rumours are true. Stay away from Manchester United. That's Tom saying that, not me. Uh, Ryan, this kid can honestly go on to whatever he wants to be. He's an unbelievably special talent. And it's a privilege to be watching him each week. The most notable thing is his size. He doesn't have the physique of a 16-year-old. That does a disservice to his ability on the ball because he glides past players. He is technically and physically capable enough to hold onto the ball and give us an outlet. He drives through the heart of midfield and makes runs off the ball. He's exceptional if raw. The next step is durability. He's grown two inches this season. I mean, that is absolutely nuts. And clearly it's still developing physically. Otherwise, it's the obvious stuff, improving technically and tactically. He'll go right to the top if his next move is the right one. I mean, I absolutely, I'm smitten with the idea of genuinely watching a midfielder growing taller during a season because he's that young. Uh, Daniel says he's the most accomplished technician in the squad along with Crowley, but also very tall and strong for his age. I mean, it's the same stuff, basically, what everyone's saying. He's physically impressive, he's technically impressive, and he plays in a style that, you know, that belies his very young years. So we're excited about Jude Bellingham. We'll be very sad to see him leave the EFL, but I think that's probably inevitable in the summer and Dortmund seems like a very exciting fit. Just say one more thing, and, and I've already made this point, but some of, we talk about young talent in the EFL all the time and we champion a lot of young talent and we think to ourselves, can Jared Bowen and Barry Easy and Ollie Watkins step up to the Premier League? I mean, Watkins is about six and a half years older than Bellingham. It, the, the, the actual age of this kid is, is the most unbelievable part of the whole story, if you ask me. It's, uh, it's amazing and, and credit to Birmingham for, for giving him the platform. George, I'm going to kick back now because to finish off this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast, it's time for the EFL Rewind. Please, George, please make it good. Yeah, I think in the past our uh, our EFL Rewinds have been, we've, we've had a few tragedies, we've had a few comedies, but this time I'm going to tell you a love story. <laughs> I thought you were going to say farce, but I'm so excited, a love story. And it's between Barna FC and Giuliano Grazioli. Oh, yes. This is so great, and it made me so happy reading up about it for the last couple of days. But let's go back to the beginning. And this is, you know, it's an EFL podcast, but this story is born in the non-league. This love story starts in 2003, 
when Grazioli moves from Bristol Rovers to Barnet. Bristol Rovers pay £110,000 for a go-go and give Grazioli as well. I mean, the fans... A swap deal. An, fans, an exchange deal. You don't, exchange. See, don't see too many of them these days. Barnet fans, obviously sad to see a go-go go. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, but at the same time, they bring in a player in Grazioli, who is a local lad. He was born in Marylebone. He grew up in Finchley in North London, so just around the corner from Underhill. And he'd already scored 52 league goals and 102 appearances. He also had a bit of a high profile, which is pretty rare in 2003 for a non-league team, for two reasons. He had scored the equaliser for Stevenage against Newcastle in the FA Cup back in 1997, a goal which made him very famous. Newcastle that, that year, that season, had beaten Barcelona in Europe. And so to get that goal, you know, really catapulted him on, on, onto the big stage. He was only there on loan. And then in 1998, a year later, Peterborough went to Underhill and beat Barnet 9-1, their record ever win, and Grazioli scored five. <laughs> so he was a player that Barnet fans already knew very well. And he came into the club as they tried to get back into the Football League. Listen to this. In his first season in the conference for, Bar- for Barnet, on November the 1st, he'd already scored 17 goals. He scored 17 in his first 15 for the club. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. But the, the season basically unravelled. He scored 25 goals up to the 24th of January. So maintained that decent form. 23 of those in the league. Then just one goal in his next 14. Didn't score in either of the playoff semi-finals against Shrewsbury, who ended up going up. So the season ended badly for Grazioli and without promotion for Barnet. But the next year was a totally different story. Barnet were promoted with 86 points. Grazioli scored 29 goals in the league, seven more than anyone else, and they go up as champions. Now we get into the EFL part, and this this love story had that bit. In all great love stories, you have the bit in the middle where it all gets very sad and everything <laughs> looks like it's going to fall apart. It has to happen, George. It has to For happen. the story arc, it has to happen. Grazioli had a hand injury in, in the next season and then had to have a knee operation. He was basically in and out of the team for the next couple of years never really scoring goals when he played as Barnett looked to consolidate their position back in the EFL. It was Martin Allen who brought him into, into the club. It was Martin Allen who took them up. And as different managers came and left, Grazioli's time at Barnet just looked to fizzle out and he ended up leaving the club in 2008, so five years after he'd arrived, but after three seasons of not really doing much. A year later, he then suffered a head injury and had to retire from football altogether and for the next year was unable to work due to that injury. When he was cleared to work again, he went and spoke to his old employers, Barnet. Barnet gave him a job in the community department. This was basically organising the players' hospital visits. You know, he had to organise ball boys on match days and coaching toddlers as well came down to him. So a bit of a fall from grace. He talked. He did that for a year, from 2010 to 2011, and he talks. He spoke about how basically he knew he didn't want to do this, and at some stage he was going to have to leave the club and try and find something else. Then, in 2011, he said he woke up one morning to eight missed calls, and Martin Allen had been reappointed manager of Barnet for his second spell in charge of the club, and immediately wanted to make Grazioli his assistant manager. Amazing. So Grazioli goes from being in the community department to being assistant manager for Martin Allen at the club that he paid for for all those five years and had those two amazing seasons. Not that dissimilar to la- to your last EFL Rewind in which 
Brian Gunn went from being Norwich's commercial manager to being their actual manager. I just Google who has made the step up from commercial manager (laughs) to... I think we also spoke about someone in the Ramon Diaz one who who occupied a similar role at Stockport. But anyway, I digress. Martin Allen comes in in 2011 at a time where Barnet are really at a low ebb. In the relegation zone, they're basically detached. I think think they're three points below uh, the side above them. And Allen comes in and immediately turns turns things around. They go three games unbeaten. But two weeks after arriving, Martin Allen then jumped ship to Notts County after two weeks what? at the club. Who is appointed caretaker manager? Giuliano Grazioli. Two and a half weeks after being in the community department, no managerial experience whatsoever. His only coaching experience is coaching toddlers. The Marylebone Mancini. <laughs> Laurie Sanchez is brought in as a consultant to kind of mentor Grazioli. But it's just five weeks they've got left of the season five games to save their league status and they lose the first one 2-0 away at Berry. but then something magnificent happens they beat Gillingham on the road 4-2 they get a tall draw at home to Barnet but then go down 3-1 away at Accrington Tough they go, to go into the final game of the season two points behind Lincoln they have Port Vale at home Lincoln are hosting Holdershot and at half-time, both games are nil-nil. An Izzy McLeod penalty puts the bees ahead, and Lincoln go down 3-0. Giuliano Grazioli has led Barnet to their second great escape in, in two seasons. The most amazing thing about this as well is that for the whole season, after the first game of the season, Barnet were always in the bottom two until the last game of the last season when they escaped by just a single point. Grazioli's quotes after the game are magnificent as a player here. Winning promotion was great. Winning golden boots and playing at Old Trafford was fantastic. But this has surpassed everything. The players have been a pleasure to work with and credit to them. We had a task in hand to be in it on the last game of the season and to go one better when nobody gave us the chance is fantastic. I knew we'd win the game today and it was a great performance under those circumstances. Those boys are a great bunch. The weird thing was I looked at Steve Tilson, the Lincoln manager's, quotes and he said I knew Barnett were going to beat Port Vale so I mean Grazioli obviously had such an incredible impact that going into the last game of the season despite being in 23rd everyone knew they were going to beat this Port Vale side he spent the next season as Laurie Sanchez's assistant after Sanchez was given the job and left after a year and he now works for a tech company Sanchez was sacked with three games to go the next campaign and who was he replaced by Giuliano Martin Allen, of course, oh, no. <laughs> for Allen's third spell at the club. I just love that this is a story about a guy who came into a side and scored so many goals and fired them up into the Football League, then had this period, the period of wilderness, and then as a manager was the key to keeping them in it, and then he just went off into the sunset, never to manage again. Giuliano Grazioli, Barnet legend. Absolutely incredible. The most exciting thing for me has been looking up that that season where he scored against Newcastle in an FA Cup game for Stevenage, as you mentioned, Newcastle had beaten a Barcelona team that, uh, and they'd kept Rivaldo, Sonny Anderson at bay, who were playing up top for, uh, <laughs> for Barcelona. Figo and Enrique scored for Barcelona. Are you, you're but... now going to do your, uh, your Giuliano Grazioli song that you did off air a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Grazioli, oh, Grazioli, oh, he could have come from Rome, but he's from Marlebone. Grazioli, oh. Superb. There we have it. 